Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Are you a physician looking for a change? Consider locum tenens. Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be the solution for you. If you're considering locum's tenens, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com is the website that has all of the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource of information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends for your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locum tenens. Visit locumstory.com today to learn more about locum tenens and see if it's right for you. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with Janice Goldmans. Janice works with seniors, families, and healthcare professionals to impart information on successful aging. Janice holds a master's degree in gerontology and provides workshops, articles, and programs to bring easier access to information for people to make informed decisions on planning for future challenges and changes. In this episode, we chat about how we as healthcare professionals can best interact with our patients and with their families and caregivers, and what we can do to empower them to be their own advocates of care while also taking care of ourselves in the process. So grab your drink of choice. You don't want to miss this episode and join us. Hi, Janice. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. 
I'm excited you're here. I know you've got quite a bit of expertise in gerontology and educating families and caregivers on how to essentially age successfully and transition successfully and having these difficult but needed conversations. From a healthcare provider's perspective, I wanted you on the show so that you could also help us because we are a part of that conversation at some point sometimes. And uh, I know patients and caregivers look to us uh, for support and how can we show up for patients and families and at, you know during this healthcare climate at the same time. So let's see if we can work through this together. Yeah, as best we can. So tell me about yourself. Sure. So my background is in gerontology. I worked with a geriatrician probably about 10 years ago now, and I got to see how his practice worked. He was amazing. He was also in the U.S., and I found that he was able to spend a lot of time with each patient and to not look at them as their disease, but to look at them with their diseases. So the things that weren't just necessarily the medical issues, but what it surrounded, how these illnesses affected their family and themselves. And I was very, very inspired and went back to school to learn more about it. I also have an interest in it from my grandparents. I remember when my grandparents were aging and they were in nursing homes. And I thought, I will never put my parent in this kind of a place. And so that was always in the back of my mind. And when this kind of opportunity arose and I went back to school, I had that in my mind that I wanted to be able to help people find solutions that are going to give the highest quality of life to the older adults, to the family members, and to any other loved one. When you think of long-term care in nursing homes today, do you still have that same thought? Um, Yes, I do, actually. Um, I've actually gone back to the exact same nursing home that my grandmother was in. Mm. And for the most part, it hasn't changed. Wow. Wow. I worked in um, long-term care for a few years. It wasn't something I expected to to do. It was it just kind of came up and I ended up there. I think I ended up working there between two different homes for about three years. And um, I, lo- I loved it. I loved it more than I, I thought I would. I led with a very progressive approach. And my purpose in that setting was to maximize um, independence and quality of life. And I will say, though, Janice, I was met with resistance from staff when I was trying to guide residents and, and family members to be involved and also to kind of figure out what it was that they wanted, because people just kind of wanted to keep things as they were, right? It was like there was no there was no progression or adaptation or transition even in that setting, right? So, yeah. So I lived in the U.S. And what I saw, uh, I lived in Buffalo, actually, and there was some progressive uh, methodology there. They started using the Eden alternative. And again, I remember they were going to take half of the nursing home and do the traditional kind of care and try out this Eden alternative, which is having the residents really involved, having households, having all of these things where it was much more resident-centered. They get to eat when they want to eat. They get a shower when they want to shower. And initially, the staff was quite resistant. And then they saw the benefit. And then they ended up transforming the whole home to the Eden alternative. And it was amazing. So when I see that kind of progression, I am inspired. But I am in Canada and in Ontario, where it's a little bit still 
not top of mind to have that kind of a progressive outlook. I was just going to say, because I know you're in Tor- the GTA, you're in the yes. Toronto area, and I'm just a few hours from you here in Windsor. So yes. yeah, I would say like our long-term care is still pretty clinical in, in its settings, right? And very task-based in a lot of ways, yes. as opposed to um, maybe resident-focused. As much as the direct staff, the direct care staff are trying, it's it's a it's a system. It's a system's issue at the end of the day. And um, so is the Eden approach something that is pretty widespread in the US? Like, is it has it been well adopted? Or is it here and there? It is not. It's here and there. Um, The the doctor that did it is from the um, upstate New York area. It has grown, I would say, in that area and in New York. Um, Having not lived in Buffalo for a number of years, I don't know now in the States how widespread it is. But the idea here, I've seen it in a few um, dementia centers, that they use that kind of household, six people together, they share a kitchen, and they have a little um, group of people that stay together. And so I do see that it has come up north, uh, but I would love to see that more widespread. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible for for everybody. Right. Yeah. Like you yeah. said, it's more... It's more tailored to their own lives, their own personal lives and and choices and um, preferences, right? So tell me like from a a healthcare provider perspective, you know, lately, and I mean, I work now in an inpatient rehab unit. So a lot of uh, my patients who come through the goal, they've been in hospital for a while. And the next step is usually the goals of returning home. Right. Um, That's the that's the main goal. But sometimes it's just not safe. And Right. Difficult conversations need to be had. And, you know, let's say I have pa- uh, 10 patients on my caseload, maybe three of them, like 30% of them, these conversations might have to be had. And I often find that the, it's something that's not, it's not super surprising maybe to the family, but it's not a conversation that was had yet until unfortunately illness strikes or, or something strikes. Right. And then you see a bit of a dynamic and you're trying to support as a like as a healthcare provider, you're trying to kind of bring everybody together. And it can be difficult for us, you know, it can, it can be hard, because you want to be present, you want to, to empathize, but you might have your patient saying one thing, and you might have the family wanting another. How do you suggest that we have these collaborative conversations, so everyone can kind of work together? (laughs) So it is a challenge. One of the things is that you have to look at the end game. What is what is the outcome that you want? And for me, it's always the highest quality of life for everybody. So let's, I'll use the word patient for, for lack of a better thing. So you've got your patient who is facing a struggle and now the family is uh, supporting and surrounding them. The goal is for that patient to have the best possible outcome. And the family can help. The family can find out. They can, it depends on the, the, I'll say the, because I'm used to aging people, the cognitive ability of that patient in that moment. And if that person has ability, then it's incumbent on the healthcare provider to deal with that patient, not to look to the family and say, well, your loved one or this person, you know, Charlie, that person gets to make decisions and some of those decisions they're going to make may not be in alignment with what their family might want. Mm -hmm. And so the family again has to take into account what does this person want in their life? What do they not want in their life? And to be okay with it. I always suggest that people have these kinds of conversations 
way before these kinds of health issues occur so that there's living wills in place. There's knowledge across the family that if somebody needed, you know, artificial hydration, artificial nutrition, would they want that? Uh, If somebody needed to be resuscitated, would they want that? And the circumstances that they would. All of these things, if it was, you know, something where it was a terminal illness, would there be a point where that person might want to look for medically assisted assistance in death? And it's having those very difficult conversations, but being open to those answers for everybody and that everybody gets to be heard and to say, hey, you know what? I can't do that for you. You need to have my sister or my brother or somebody else do it. I can't I can't be the one that says, yes, go ahead with whatever that is, that protocol. I think that having a, a close relationship with the healthcare providers is very important. And to realize that some people may not understand everything that's being said to them, but they may not say, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so that can be overwhelming. And so to encourage people to have that relationship to say, you know, can you explain that better? Can you write it down? Can we go over it? Can we step away, figure some things out, and then come back to the conversation? And the same for the the healthcare providers. They have to realize that even though they have time limit in how much they can spend with their patients, these people are making decisions for their life. And it may take them some time and it may be that you have to walk away and say, all right, I'll come back and we'll have this discussion later. I always tell people to put yourself in the position of those people. How would you want your own family to be dealt with in these situations? Why do you think, Janice, that families maybe are not having these conversations early on? Is it just a lack of education around knowing that this type of thing could happen or that it's so complicated when it does happen, like the navigation and just like, there's a lot that goes into it. I know from a care planning perspective with families, there's a lot of of stuff they, that, that they have to plan for and it's it could be overwhelming. So why do people hesitate? I'm going to say it's the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Uh, sometimes kids will say to their parents, Hey, I see that you're having some challenges with whatever. And they're like, no, 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 we're good. We're good. No, we're fine. No, no, you're, you know, or speak about having help come in. No, 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 we don't want that. Or on the opposite end, you have the the parent saying to the child, you know, I'm having some issues with, you know, my activities of daily life. And the child is like, no, you're good. You're good. No, you're good. It is that realization that things happen and will happen. And are you ready to deal with it? Because you see, you know, we see our parents as they're going to live forever. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we have that notion when we're little and when we're bigger, sometimes that notion still is there or that realization that things are happening. And now I'm going to have to be the decision maker. I'm going to have to be the one that takes on the responsibility And I've got my kids over here. Now I've got my parents. I'm in the middle of the sandwich. I'm not ready. I don't have the bandwidth. I don't know what, and I don't know what to do. I want to do my best, but if I don't know, then I can't, then I, you know, ignorance is bliss. Mm -hmm. And I find that happens a lot. Right. And then it, when this type of tragedy happens, it's like, you're just confronted with it and it just seems so sudden and overwhelming, right? So I definitely encourage as well, like just 
these life decisions being had and openly discussed as, as much as possible so that when they do happen, because they will happen, that everyone's kind of on the same page or at least can be present and help their loved ones. And I think there's also cultural things that different yeah. cultures have different degrees of openness. There are certain cultures where you just don't have that um, background of having these deep kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. So to start all of a sudden now, it's just totally out of the realm of what they're used to doing. Mm -hmm. And then it's foisted on them and they have no choice and they don't know how to communicate as a family group. They've Mm -hmm. never done it. Mm -hmm. So to say now you have some kind of decisions to make and expect that they can do that that's why I think sometimes outside people, you know, outside help can be very uh, advantageous. And what do you mean by outside help, Janice? Um, sometimes somebody like me, if it's in terms of somebody who has older parents, somebody who is uh, an advocate for older adults that knows kind of what the system looks like, I would say having experienced it with uh, in a pediatric setting, because I had a child that was disabled and all kinds of decisions needed to be made. Um, somebody who is used to dealing with parents that have young children, maybe it's a social worker or somebody else, a, a, an advocate for that, who can be sort of an objective observer. It's it's hard when you have somebody who is involved in the healthcare themselves to be objective because they, they know what they see for that person. But sometimes you need somebody who can just say, all right, let's take a literally a flip chart. Here's the pros of that. Here's the cons. Here's what it is in black and white. You decide for you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's what you need is somebody who can step back and say, I hear your, you know, this is why you want this. I hear why you don't want it. Let's literally look at everything without judgment and figure it out. Yeah. And in the clinical setting, for me, like you mentioned earlier, the, the, our patient's voice, and if, if they've got the capacity to make those decisions, like it always comes back to that. And I find that that's the foundation is um, our patient's goals, their desires, and and kind of that I find in, in my personal, like our professional circumstances, I find that's a, a big grounding point for me to get regrounded as well and facilitate the family to to come together and come to an equal decision ultimately that everyone can be happy with and it's not always an easy thing emotionally right and so just kind of being there for people um really is just helpful and is also treatment in a way so now like you know the current state of our healthcare system yes um i think a lot of the stress on healthcare providers is having to also be that support um, right. And we've we've always been doing it, right? We've always been doing it. But now when you look at the resources and just everything feeling so limited and everything feeling like we don't have enough time, even more so than before since the pandemic, I would say, um, shining a light on all of that. How can we show up still in such a way that we can still support our patients and their families through these types of challenges? Uh, so one of the things that that I would say is to do your best. Yeah. There's there's no perfection in this, and, and we all have to be okay with where we're at, what we can physically do, and what we can't do. We can't do everything for everybody. We just mm-hmm. can't. And to be okay with, you know what, I can do this, and that's what I can do, and be okay with it. I think that we need to look at healthcare as a team. 
It's not just the nurse that comes in at three o'clock in the afternoon to talk to me. It's all the nurses. It's the, the person who brings me my dinner. It's the person who comes and changes, you know, whatever it is, they're cleaning up in here. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the doctor, it's the physiotherapist. It's all of this team that as a team, if they're providing their highest level of care, that's all that we can do. And if everyone is on the same page with that patient, that's important. I think you need to look at what each person is because everybody is an individual. And I think sometimes we forget it. We see, as I was talking about earlier, the diseases, but not the diseases. Mm-hmm. And these people are scared and worried and they don't have all of the knowledge and they're trying to piece everything together and having empathy for that. And I think that that's a really big thing is developing empathy for people, which is, you know, figuring out how would I feel if I was laying in that bed? And I know that one of the things in medicine is to try and have a kind of an arm's length relationship. And that's okay. So that you don't burn out from taking on everybody's, you know, stress and illness. And that's important too, is that you can distance yourself to the degree that you don't carry everybody's thing with you. That's very important. But you have to still have some empathy and take care of yourself. If, if you're not eating, if you're run off your feet and you are dead tired, you're not going to be good to anyone. I mean, I always use the analogy of it. They always say on an airplane, If the oxygen comes down, you need to put it on yourself first or you aren't good to anybody. So it is finding ways to take care of yourself, whether it's um, talking to your colleagues, whether it's, again, an outside service. If there's, you know, some kind of counseling service that can be made available so you can just say, you know what, today was bad. Mm-hmm. Or I need help. I am stressed. I've got my kids and I'm worried about them and I, or whatever. Or I'm worried about my parents and all of this thing to be real with it. And if things come up to have a way to deal with it, I think it would be great if we could change the system, mm-hmm. but the system is not changing. And I think creating an atmosphere of adaptability, because every day, if you're in an, an emergency room, it's, you're going to have something different. Less and less access to general physicians. More and more people are showing up at those emergency rooms. They're waiting longer and longer. They're getting more and more impatient. Why am I sitting here? And the frontline staff are the ones that are having to deal with, with all of this. And that's a big challenge. So I don't know how we can change the system, but I think that it's got to come from nurses, doctors, physiotherapists, everybody saying what is going to be the best thing for us as a as a system. And people are getting older. It's only going to get worse if we don't do something now. Yeah. And like you said, even in the emergency room setting, like those decisions determining someone's life in a way is happening in that quick of a time sometimes. Like I feel privileged to work on an inpatient rehab unit where we have more time with patients and families and we can 
we can take the time to bring everybody together for the most part. And even sometimes that doesn't feel like enough time, but I can only imagine in emergency room settings in an acute care settings where those decisions, sometimes like people might have to go from hospital to long-term care right away uh, when they've been at home and, and independent because of a tragedy. So, and then even as a provider being in that setting, witnessing that, it, like you kind of mentioned about empathy and overconsumption and, and that burnout that we can sometimes then take on too, because right. we just see the transitions happen before our eyes um, as well, just as quickly. So yeah, you just deeply empathize with, with people um, who are going through it. So from your perspective as a caregiver yourself and someone in this, this area of expertise, really, can you tell if a healthcare provider, because you know, like, and, and I've said this forever that patients and families know that we're busy, you know, and that's not their burden to bear though. That's, you know, that's, we're the providers, like we're the ones working and we're the ones providing care and we don't want them to take that on. So given that you know that, how do you know if a a provider is showing up empathetically with understanding that you truly believe that they that they want to be there and that they're there to support you because I'm sure you've seen both. I know I, and I'm fully disclosing as a caregiver, I saw both and that's why I champion this message as well. So yeah. Can you give me some, just so that people know for themselves, just as a little bit of a reflection. So when somebody is, I'll say in an empathetic way, they are listening more than they're speaking. They are validating whatever it is you are experiencing. Whether they can change it or they can't change it, at least that validation can be very important. A touch, um, a sitting down. um, When you feel like somebody is listening to you, looking at you, it's like with anybody. You want to feel like you're being heard, number one. When somebody comes in and they treat you with respect, Oh, not like, hi, honey, how are you today? Or how are we today? Mm. Those kinds of ways of treating people just put people's guard up. Yeah. And I think we have to treat each other with respect, with time, with listening. And and I think also with honesty, because somebody may, may ask a question that the caregiver or the nursing staff or the health professional the answer they may have to give may not be the answer that that person wants, but they deserve to get those answers. And being honest with compassion and empathy, you feel it. You know, I know this is hard for you. I, I, or I can't even imagine what you're going through. Those kinds of ways of being human. I think it's being human Mm -hmm. before being clinical. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think being in um, a position where we help people and where it can be hard to, because I love how you said whether we can help or not in a way, or whether we can resolve the issue or or help somebody get to their goal or not. Um, I think just being real about that, uh, whether we can or we we can't, and, and being willing to have that hard conversation, I think shows compassion and empathy as well. And I think also allowing that person to choose. Let's Mm -hmm. say the person has terminal cancer and there's treatments that are available, but those treatments have side effects or, or whatever it is. And that person says, you know what? I don't want to do that. I would rather live my balance of my life doing other things. And that the health professional is okay with that person not wanting intervention Mm -hmm. and 
allowing them to have that empowerment. Even again, if it's not what they would choose for them, just like the family, that they also allow that person to direct their own healthcare. Yeah, I love that. I'm so on board with that. I think that's fundamental for sure, because um, it takes our own biases out of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And we all have biases. Yeah. We all have our religious backgrounds, our cultural backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds. And to put that aside, it's a challenge. And, and there's no doubt about it. I think, you know, things should go this way. But you have to be open that somebody else may have a different view and allow them to live through their own goals and uh, objectives. Yeah. Um, so you started this advocacy in 2016, Janice, is that correct? Yes. So well, I've been doing it in different realms, but I would say much more of, a, of the advocacy than yes. Okay. So over the last, let's say, six years then, really, do you think we're moving in the right direction? Do you think we're not moving at all? Are we still as we've been since 2000? Like, what are you finding right now? Okay. I, I don't want to get political. Mm-hmm. Me neither. <laughs> but, I, but I see the, a direction of actually marginalizing older adults, mm. of saying, hey, we need space in a hospital. We're just going to put you wherever we want. So I think we are going in the wrong direction. In that way, I think are doing exactly what we were talking about is focusing on the well-being of the patient in this way is not it. As I said, in the long-term cares, I've gone and visited a number of long-term cares. We are so far from taking proper care of our older adults. Mm -hmm. They're warehoused. And unfortunately, I I don't want to say that for every single long-term care because there are some really good ones. Mm -hmm. But if you look on average, if you think about in Ontario, and I'll just use that as an example, if you live in a long-term care and you're in Toronto, you pay the same amount as somebody who lives in a small town. In a small town, the costs may be different than living in Toronto, but your payment for your care is the same. They can't provide the same level of care for the same amount of money. It's just not possible. So is there a way to balance that out? If it costs more to have a PSW come in in Toronto, should they be getting more money to provide a similar level of care or whatever? Yeah, my, my view is that we are going in the right direction. Yeah, ultimately. And that's why we need to have these conversations. Yes. And and wherever we're at, I think, because this is why this whole podcast started. It was like, I can't change the system. This was back in 2019, but I'm going to contribute as much as I can and use my voice where I can to support other providers and support like the patients, you know, and, yeah. and caregivers, right? Like. I was a caregiver to my dad. And if it wasn't for my mom being in good health, they, my dad for sure would have ended up in long-term care. Like, you know, I just, I know that. And it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking just for me to even think about. So. And I think that that's part of the equation is advocacy Mm -hmm. for your loved one, especially when somebody cannot speak for themselves, but you have to be able to do it. And not everybody can. And so sometimes you need somebody from the outside or you need somebody who is coaching you to do that because that white coat syndrome definitely 
does occur with older adults. Well, the doctor said I need to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes there's other alternatives or there's other things that can be looked at. And if you aren't aware of it or you don't know how to access it, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to, to be strong in your convictions to say, I want to look, I want to, I want to investigate. And it's not about second and third and fourth opinions. It's not, I'm, I'm not saying to go and look for the doctor who's going to uh, uh, agree with what you want, mm-hmm. but to have that opportunity to say, this is what I want. I was a caregiver for my mom. My mother had dementia mm-hmm. and there were things that were suggested for her um, drugs and things that just put her over the edge, sort of the other way to, uh, not being able to function, and I and I just said this is not this isn't optimal either. There has to be a middle ground where she's not you know agitated, but she's not zonked out. Mm-hmm. And so I had that ability to say, okay, let's try something else. Let's do something else. We had financial resources to have help that not everybody has. Mm-hmm. So sometimes long term care is the only option. So if it is, let's make it the best option for them. Let's make it livable and all of that. The other thing that happens uh, that I see you were talking about care is what I call dump and drop. Mm. Sometimes families just cannot deal with what's going on. They put their loved one in a retirement residence or a a long-term care. And even though they have the ability to visit or do that, they choose not to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in the hospital setting, I've seen that yeah. where um, it's it's almost a bit of relief for some yes. family members, yeah. and I and I get that because they're burned out. You know, I can empathize with that as well. But I, I've seen that even in our setting sometimes as well. So even before transitioning to from then, from out of the hospital, and then you have the opposite. So you have people who get moved to somewhere where the family, as much as they want to come on a regular basis, they can't. Mm-hmm. because of location or distance or family obligations and they want to be there. And then they have that whole guilt mm-hmm. of not being there. So you have, there's so many different angles and sides of uh, caring for that particular person and their circle around them and how that is going to affect their well being. Mm-hmm. What I love about your advocacy, Janice, is you look at maximizing everyone's quality of life who's in the picture. Right. I think it's really important to start again, like you said in the beginning, with the um, the patient's voice, really the person's voice who you're working with as a healthcare provider. If that person is saying, you know, I want my family involved, I want them to be near me, I want them nearby, like honoring that too as much as we can, rather than just disregarding and going to the nearest bed that's located wherever else, right? So that's the only way I can see us kind of coming together is starting with the patient's voice. They really, to me, are central to any further decision-making care planning. Like we don't move forward unless that the patient, right. resident, whoever it is, is sharing their voice and, and is going with the plan, right? It's part of the plan um, and active in that. So, and some people want to be and some people don't. And sometimes it's it's a hard decision for them to, to, to come to, but then they too, I think families then too have to start having those conversations, like you said early on, to kind of minimize that stress as well, maybe. Yeah, because yeah. you may have let's say um, a husband and wife where the wife says, you know what, this is the kind of care I want. And the husband 
wants more because of course he wants to keep his wife with him as long as he can. But the wife is like, no, I don't, I, this is what I want. And it's hard because you've got somebody who you absolutely love and you're watching them go through something and you just want, again, you want the best for both of you, Mm -hmm. but your idea of the best is different. Yes. And that's where it becomes also a challenge is, well, I think the best is A. Well, I think the best is B. And that's where I said having a conversation ahead of time, if you can, to say if this situation arose, honestly, this is what I would want and what I wouldn't want. And I have my living will. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I have seen where somebody has said, well, you need to make a decision about this thing. And the person said, I can't make it. And then you say, but here it is in the living will. You don't have to make the decision. The decision has been made for you. You don't have to feel guilty or bad or indecisive. Here it is on this Mm -hmm. piece of paper. And I just tell people, I know sometimes having that conversation is not what you want to be doing, but it's going to save you so much you know, emotionality and, and stress in the end, if people can go by what that person really wants. Yeah. It's the same with we sign our license to say that we want to donate our organs or not. Yeah. So that we make that choice so that we're not saying to somebody, do you want to donate your loved one's organs here, here, they want it, they don't want it. Mm-hmm. It's not a decision that somebody makes at a, at a time of intense uh, stress and grieving. Absolutely, because it just makes it all the more stressful for them. And I don't know how that can be healing at the same time when you're dealing with that stress on top of it. Right. So Janice, tell me about should I stay or should I go this initiative? So what it is, is I really believe that people benefit from as much information as they can get. So when I talk about should I stay or should I go, it's for your older parents or older adults is Aging in place, the best thing, or is congregate care, which is what I would call senior residence or long-term care, is that a better idea? Mm-hmm. And it depends on a lot of things. One of them is support from your family. If you have a lot of support and you have financial backing, sometimes being at home, it's you can stay there until the end of life and you can provide end-of-life care. Sometimes you can't. If you don't have uh, support, or even if you do, but it's not the kind of support that can help you to maintain being at home. One of the things that I see that's uh, a very big difference is socialization. If this person doesn't have a circle of friends that are still able to socialize and whatever, aging in place and having that person be isolated is not in their best interest. Mm. Putting them in a congregate situation where they have socialization, even with cognitive issues, people still are able to socialize and be aware of socialization. So sometimes that can be a deciding factor. It can also be what's going on physically. Do you have a home that is conducive to somebody being at home? If their bedroom is upstairs and they can no longer get up the stairs, you know, then you have a choice. Can you make the dining room a bedroom? Is there a bathroom on the main level that has showering facility? Or can you create it? There's so many variables. And what I'm trying to do is to give people what they need to think about to make the decision. 
And in all honesty, I don't tell people you should do one or the other, Mm -hmm. but to look at your particular situation and make the best decision for you. Mm -hmm. So a very informed decision. Yes. Which is kind of in alignment with what we do as well um, in healthcare as providers as well. Yeah. So where can people connect with you, Janice, if they want some of your expertise, if they want to consult with you, learn from you? So a couple of places. Uh, I have a website, which is talkaboutaging.com. I'm also, I have a Facebook group, which is Talk About Aging. So you can find me on Facebook. If you are um, the child of aging parents, I have another Facebook group called Aging Parents. So I'm there. You can call me uh, 647-780-2258. You can email me at Janice at talkaboutaging.com. And I'm happy to listen. I'm happy to be a sounding board. I'm happy to advocate or ask, you know, or answer questions. The other thing is, if you're interested, I uh, created a book called Getting Older But Not Old, and I'm happy to share that with people. It's got some really uh, interesting things about dating and sex when you're older, volunteerism, how to have really a successful life, how to have a great relationship with your health professionals. So I'm very happy to share that with people as well. That's awesome. And it's not just um, families or caregivers to reach out to you. It's also healthcare providers who reach out to you as well, organizations. Yeah, I do seminars um, for healthcare providers on how to have better communication with older adults. Um, I'm actually doing one for residents at a a senior residence on grieving, because that's a topic that is, again, not discussed with older adults. When you move from your home to a senior residence, the residence can be gorgeous and wonderful. But think about you live in your house for 40 years with all of your possessions. And now someone says, well, take all your possessions from your 2,000 square foot house and go and live in a 500 square foot suite. Mm-hmm. You are getting rid of a lot of your life. And there is grief in that, even though it's exciting, there's going to be programs and people and food and and things to do. There is still that part of you are giving up part of what was your life. And it's not always acknowledged. Yeah, so true. We sometimes focus on kind of where people are going as opposed to maybe what they've had to sacrifice or lose along the way. And I think it's, you could have both, right? Like the both conversations need to be had. Well, I thank you so much, so much for being here and sharing your expertise and your experiences, your advocacy. So for me as a, as a healthcare provider, I've learned a lot in in a way that I can show up better for my patients and for their families and, and caregivers to help make these discussions a little bit easier and these transitions a little bit easier. So thank you so much. Thank you. Just, you know, my, my goal is again, That's my tagline, highest quality of life, any age, any stage. And I really believe that. Me too. And I I just want to say, I didn't say this earlier, but I was going to, in terms of aging successfully, like it's not just about the number, right? It's just, it's the transitioning maybe. I I don't know what other word for it, you know, but but I know what you're saying there in terms of uh, highest quality of life wherever you're at. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you are 90 years old and you're still skiing and you're still doing all these things, that's wonderful. But that's not the, the barometer of successful aging. Mm-hmm. It's not. Because there are people who are in their 70s that have health issues and cognitive issues. 
doesn't mean that they shouldn't still have an amazing quality of life to the best possible degree that they can. Absolutely. Totally agree. Thank you so much, Janice. Thank you. Okay. Take care. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes. And you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jenniferGeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.